All right, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 20, the 20th Psalm, our second week of our Experiencing God series, Looking to God. Donald, great music selections, man. That was, we got the, the, the Hebrew feel of the music since we're preaching from the Old Testament, and in clearly covered our verse and our theme in that, and you, were, you did songs that I've done, I did a long time ago, and, and I'm glad to get to do them again. Um, that was uh, very good, I appreciate that. So, take your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. The first parachute, y'all might not know, was designed by Leonardo da Vinci. He was the first one to design it. Uh, he was born in the mid-1400s, died in the early 1500s, so not sure exactly when he designed it. But it basically looked like a big pyramid umbrella. Uh, da Vinci actually designed a lot of things that he couldn't, he couldn't actually build. Um, they didn't have the technology to make what he thought up, which is really wild. Uh, he invented a helicopter, but couldn't, couldn't get it off the ground, didn't, didn't even know how to begin to make it. Uh, first parachute, though, was designed by him, but they never actually tested the theory until 1787. A Frenchman uh, by the name of Louis-Sébastien Lenormand, maybe, uh, tested the theory with two umbrellas and a tree, and it was a successful landing. Uh, he didn't, didn't die. Uh, the first jump with what we would recognize as a parachute was in 1797 by another Frenchman, uh, André-Jacques Gonnerin, from a hot air balloon 3,200 feet in the air. Uh, it was a, the parachute was already built. It had a frame. It was fabric. It was, had a basket underneath it. So it was a parachute in the style of what we would imagine, but not the backpack that opens up. They hadn't come up with that. Uh, they did actually come up with that eventually. Now, his jump was successful. He made it. Uh, the, the interesting thing I read about this fellow was that he uh, did not know that you needed to cut a hole in the top to uh, keep your drop straight. So he, for 3,200 feet, he did this. And he was uh, a bit disoriented, and, uh, but he landed safely. He did survive. That was a successful leap. Uh, the first parachute like we would think of was actually done uh, in the late 1800s, um, but this gentleman we're going to talk about next is Franz Reichelt. He was Austrian, uh, but he lived in France, and in 1912, he had this brilliant idea for a parachute suit. Uh, you're going to see a couple of pictures of what that parachute suit would look like. There on the left, that's what it would look like opened up. And on the right, that's what it looked like right before he tested it, uh, what it looked like when he wore it. And it was uh, not a bad idea. He was a, a tailor. Uh, he was actually known as the Flying Tailor after this anyway. But he, was wanting, he wanted a parachute for low-altitude pilots uh, or, or pilots to be able to jump out of a plane at low altitude if they needed to. He, he, was, he had good things in mind here. He was trying to protect people, trying to help people. So he decided or designed this parachute suit. Uh, and in 1910, there wasn't anything for people to jump out of an airplane with if they had been piloting it. They didn't st yet have the backpack parachute idea. So he was trying to come up with something. He began his test with dummies off of a five-story uh, uh, building, and uh, they would land softly. It, it seemed to be working out when he would test this with uh, these dummies out of, a, out, out of a building. So he decided that he was going to test his design. Now, it worked by simply extending your arms out, and that would cause the, the wind to fill up the suit behind you, and you would float safely down as it billowed above you. At least that was uh, the idea. Uh, he decided to test it from the Eiffel Tower. But the first level, first uh, base, I think they called it, of the Eiffel Tower, which is 187 feet high. Now, I'm horrible with feet. I don't know what that means. I, I know what a foot is. 
I got a couple of them. But as far as 187 of them stacked end on end, on end that doesn't mean anything to me. I think of it as an 18-story building. That I can do. That's that. So imagine an 18-story building. Uh, what does our bank building have here in uh, Lake Charles? How many floors does it have? 22? Okay. Knock off five, and, and you've got how high he was when he jumped. And he told people, they said, are you sure? Don't you want to throw a dummy off before? Well, he was about to throw a dummy off, turned out. Um, but wouldn't you like to test it first? And he said, no, here's some quotes. I want to try the experiment myself and without trickery as I intend to prove the worth of my invention. Uh, and he told somebody else as he was walking up to the Eiffel Tower, you're going to see how my 72 kilos and my parachute will give your arguments the most decisive of denials. So he climbed up there. Uh, he was... 187 feet off the ground, and, and here's the fascinating thing. He had told the news companies, he told the, the newspapers, and in 1912, they had video cameras. So they recorded his jump. There were two cameras there that day. One of them was on the platform with him, and the other one was down at the bottom from in front. So he's going to jump this way, and it's going to capture his uh, descent. Uh, they, they have the, the, the footage still, and you can go online and see it. He stood there, when he, when he got ready to do his jump, he climbed up there and he stood at the edge where he was going to jump 187 feet for 40 seconds. He stood there and, and you watch the footage, the camera was from his left and he's, he's got his arms like this and he would go I mean you could see him having to steal his nerves to, to make that jump because he, he believed in his suit mostly but didn't, wasn't sure is this going to work out well there were a, a, a couple of things working against him that day the first being uh, a, a stiff wind from his left so there was this it was blowing and flapping and the whole physics of his suit was he stretches his arms out and it fills up behind him. Well, if you've got a strong wind coming from you, at you from the side, that's going to mess up your physics just a little bit. And it turns out that it messed up his, his physics a lot. Uh, his parachute only seemed to half open. As soon as he jumped, it folded around him, and he plummeted for a few seconds before crashing into the ground. It, it didn't work, and nobody tried a parachute suit after that. Uh, it was pretty soon and actually had already been tested that, that a backpack type parachute had been uh, invented in America already and was beginning to gain steam, but he was trying this different idea. He was unsuccessful. Um, but he believed it, though. I mean, even in his hesitation, that 40 seconds of uh, maybe, 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 he, he took the leap and he put his trust in this parachute suit, but we would say that very likely that was a misplaced trust. Well, this morning we're talking about trust, and we're talking about trust that is not misplaced if that trust is placed in the proper hands. Uh, our friend Franz here placed his trust in his own hands, and... Uh, certainly spiritually that almost always nope that always causes problems psalm 20 verse 7 we're actually going to read the whole psalm uh, our focal verse is verse 7 that's our memory verse this week uh, for experiencing god some trust in chariots some in horses but we will trust in the name of the lord our god but we're going to read the whole thing David wrote, May the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. May the name of Jacob's God protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offering. May he give you what your heart desires and, for, and fulfill your whole purpose. Let us shout for joy at your victory and lift the banner in the name of our God. May the Lord fulfill all your requests. Now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories from his right hand. Some take pride or boast or trust in chariots 
and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fail, but we rise and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. May he answer us on the day that we call. Now, this whole psalm is a blessing pronounced on the king going to war by the assembly, whatever the assembly is, the, the people gathered for church at that time, gathered at the temple after he's done his uh, sacrifices. Verses 1 through 4 give us an acknowledgement of God's provision. We read this passage and we see that there's no dependence on self here. There's uh, no expectation due, uh, uh, expectation of success due to self or due to the king. They're, they're not banking their hopes in, on the king. They're banking their hopes on the Lord. There is a certain expectation of worship of God by the king, by the one going out. And, and we see that in those verses they, they knew that he had spent time in relationship with the Lord before he goes out to, to fight this battle. These, uh, these sacrifices and the worship show us keenly that there was no assumption of kingly right to victory. Just because you're the king, just because you're uh, uh, a Christian, just because you think you have the right idea does not mean you are guaranteed success apart from what God does, apart from God's will. There's no supposition here of God's blessings on our plans or on the king's plans. Verses 5, 8, and 9 tell us, show us that there's an expectation of victory, certainly, but it is based on God. Now, obviously, there was military planning involved. He's going to war. He's not going with dull instruments, uh, dull weapons, uh, sick horses, uh, broken chariots, and, and bows that, that don't have uh, the string, and, and arrows that aren't uh, uh, flocked, fletched aren't fletched, uh, he, he's, he's made preparations. They're not going out without a plan. Hey, y'all just, you know, if you see somebody, shoot them. You know, there, there were certainly plans involved in this, but there's an understanding that military planning was secondary to God's intervention, though certainly the military planning was there. Verse 6 is the only first-person verse in the, uh, in the whole psalm. Everything is, you, king, you're doing this, God is doing this through you. It's the assembly, the congregation, pronouncing this blessing based on their prayer and their relationship with the Lord that is also based on the king's prayer and relationship uh, with the Lord. And verse 6 is the king's declaration of faith, that yes, I will do all these things. I, I, the Lord gives victory to me. I, will, I, will know, uh, I know the Lord gives victory and... Uh, he will answer, it says him, but he's talking about himself with mighty victories because of this. And verse 7, our focal verse today, is where we see the vital placement of trust. We see the people understanding and the king understanding, though we have these, this military planning, though we have these instruments of war, that is not where we place our trust. In this day, the chariot and the horse was as technologically advanced in war as you could get. It was a tank going up against pop guns. The chariot was it. If you had chariots, and Egypt had a bunch of them, and Israel had a tendency to look to Egypt and say, wow, they've got things together. They had done that since they had been brought out of captivity. Within weeks of leaving Egypt, it's oh, it's horrible here. Well, we can't even go back to Egypt. Egypt was great. They got spices and good food. We got manna and quail. And constantly looking back at Egypt, and that never ended. They would continue to look at the powers around them and say, boy, aren't they uh, blessed. Uh, use that term loosely. Because their trust wasn't always where it was supposed to be. But this passage tells us where it is. Don't look at those things. Look at your God. And that's what we're going to look at today. Again, today, the, the, the five headings, the, the five points of my message are going to follow the five days of our Experiencing God lessons this week. And so that this week, maybe I won't say day when I mean week and week when I mean day. I actually wrote it on the screen. You know, I figure if 
I need to say it, right? It's probably best to write it down. So that's what we're going to do. Day one was God-centered living. And what do we see as God-centered living based on this verse of uh, chapter uh, 20, verse 7? We see, first of all, if, if God-centered living is the goal, God-centered living is the plan, that trust in the Lord, the last part of that verse, is a daily activity. We're pretty good as Baptists, as evangelicals, with saying trust in the Lord was a, 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 is a one-time, is a definite activity when we get saved. I trusted, I placed my faith and trust, that's the phrase we often use, in Jesus and sometimes we leave it there, but that is not what we see here. We see trust as a daily activity because the truth is many aspects of our lives, many of the things that go on in our lives will claim our trust, will say, put your trust here. Put, put, put your faith in, you, in, in what's going on or what the outcome will be here. Uh, we, we put our faith in our work or our finances, our health, our intelligence, our experience, our ability, uh, our chariots and our horses. We put our faith in all of those things around us that maybe we have put into place and said, okay, this is where I trust. Or maybe other people have put in, our pl in, in place and we say, okay, we trust that, those things maybe because we trust the people. The thing is, those things will fail us. We'll talk a little bit more about that, about why that is in, in a few minutes, but they will fail us. They will always fall short. They will never measure up to, to the task at hand. Oh, they may be enough for our plans, but those things will never be enough if our faith and trust is in them for the plans that God has for us doesn't mean that God can't use our work, finances, health, intelligence, experience, ability, chariots, and horses in order to accomplish his plans. Certainly that's not what it means. But if it's not God's plan, as we're going to see here in a little bit, it's our plan, then those instruments of fulfilling our plan will fail every time because our plans will always fall short of what God has for us. A regular God-centering is necessary for trust. If we're going to have God-centered centered living, if we are going to trust in the Lord instead of these other things, then we have to do this regularly. We have to be God-centered. And God-centering is not an automatic thing in our lives. The, the rule is entropy. The rule is that everything's going apart. Things aren't naturally coming together. Some of the uh, great examples... Uh, that I've heard lately was uh, a guy talking about his need to diet and exercise, and and he said, you know, I don't, my body doesn't uh, naturally move toward running a marathon. Uh, left alone, I don't gravitate to kale and carrot sticks. I gravitate personally to pastries of the chocolate variety. Or of the honey bun variety. That, that's, you know, that, that's where I go. Left alone without actual involvement and, and choice making, good choice making, we fall apart. Our spiritual lives are the same way. We don't gravitate to God. We don't naturally come into a better relationship with the Lord. We don't naturally God-center. We naturally pull back. God-centered living is all about what God is doing, not about our plans, not what we trust in. The Bible, as Blackaby tells us, but I would say our lives, based on this verse, their lives, those things are about what God is doing, not about what we do. We place our faith, we have our plans, we have our ideas, and we're going to do it this way using these instruments, and we look to the Bible, and it doesn't tell us about what people were doing in order to please God. It tells us about what God was doing through his people and how he was providing both the vision and the means to get there. The Bible isn't about the people. The Bible is about God because it's God-centered living. Day two, we, we read about God's plans versus our plans. This whole passage, verse uh, chapter 20, is, is talking about 
uh, confidence in victory. That is its character. That's what it's pointing to. Every, every verse is uh, uh, in some way about how the king in his battle will be victorious. They knew that. The congregation knew that. The assembly knew that. The king knew that because of his relationship, their relationship with God. God's plans to give them victory were learned through relationship. Now, the battle wasn't always won with chariots and horses and swords. Go read about Jehoshaphat. Uh, and if you are about my age or led a children's choir for kids about my age, you might remember the musical Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat. How many of y'all remember that? Anybody? Andy does. Donald does. Nobody? Oh, y'all missed a good one. Dennis and Nan Allen, I think, it's who it was. They were, I want to say they wrote Down by the Creek Bank, too. Uh, they, they were phenomenal children's musical writers. I was eight, nine years old when we did uh, Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat in, uh, at State Boulevard Baptist Church in Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, Buddy McElroy is, is, uh, was my, our music minister at State Boulevard, and that was Donald's mentor. They're still good friends. Uh, this is, th th I was fat, fat Jehoshaphat, go figure. Um, didn't appreciate it too much at the time as a nine-year-old. Uh, they, they told me it's not because you're fat, and I was like, whatever. Um, and, 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 you know, they put pillows on each side of me, and I had my dad's uh, like down vest on. It's, I mean, I was huge when they dressed me up like, and all that. I, I give you that to give you a mental image of why this, uh, this, I still remember this so well. Jehoshaphat was told to go battle the people that were coming against Israel. King Jehoshaphat, go battle them, but put the choir out front. Worship as you go. The instrument of destruction for those people was not the military might of Israel, but the might of the Lord through his people worshiping him, through the relationship. See, God's plan was different from theirs. It made total sense for them to go to battle with every military uh, strategy they could come up with, but that's what, not what God said do. God said, go to battle with me in the way that I tell you, and you will see success. God's plans were learned through relationship. In the musical, we fasted, and I got skinny. Uh, I got to take off the pillows and the vest and come out all trim and uh, all that stuff. I've uh, since put the pillows back on, so to speak. Um, but in the musical and in, in reality, they fasted and they prayed and they sought relationship with the Lord and they knew what God's plan was to do something out of the ordinary, something that didn't make any sense to what they were looking at. God, we can't fight a battle with the choir. We can't fight a battle with worship. And God says the only battle you need to concern yourself with is the battle against evil, the battle against the devil, and you win that battle only through worship. Our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the devil and his, his angels, and we, we win this battle with spiritual armor, not with physical armor. And then when something like this happens, when uh, God's plan comes along and it's different from our plan, God gets the glory for his plan. And God gets the glory for his plan and not our plan. I... I you, you have this idea of what you're going to do and how it's going to work out, and, and it works out exactly like you planned. Where was God in that plan? Oh, we like to say, well, he gave me the idea, and he gave me the, the resources to do it, but as a church, we should never be satisfied with doing those things that we can, uh, or, or in which we can point to our abilities making it happen. That was a complicated sentence. Let me see if I can figure out a way to say it in an easier way to understand. When something happens in our church, can we all look around and say, boy, we're sure glad we had so-and-so here to do that? Or do we look at what happened and go, if God had not done it, it would not have happened. 
We want the latter, not the former. We want to be living just on the edge of failure so that the only way we can say God was doing it or the only way we can say it was accomplished was that God was doing it. Then he gets the glory. See, chariots and horses are our way, our plans. They are not necessarily his. It might be that it is strictly worship. It might be in the case of Joshua that it's horns blowing and people yelling and the walls tumble down. It could be in the case of Gideon, it's 300 men who look like thousands because of the strategy that God gave them and the armies defeat themselves because of confusion. But it's always God's plan that succeeds and it is always our plan that fails. If we're trusting in God and not our own, our, our own plans, our own ways, our own uh, abilities, then there's no way we get credit or glory. Uh, one of the leadership quotes I've seen floating around lately is, it's ama- is this, it's amazing what can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. Well, that's, that's good in, in business, that's good in a secular company, But in a church, what we need to be certain of is that in every situation, God gets the credit. Because if we accomplish anything, it is only through the Lord's hand. And if we're doing it by our own hand, then we're getting glory, not God, and that is misplaced. And it will not succeed, and it will not last. See, it is never, the plans are never about us, our preferences, the individual The plans are always about what God is doing with the church. We are going through experiencing God so that we can experience him individually. But as we experience him individually in a community of faith, our entire church begins to move and change and alter its view and alter its direction and alter its expectations and alter its plans alter its desires, and always focus only on what God wants. Day three, God takes the initiative. It is always God working. God, we see in verse 20, or in chapter 20, gives the victory. Lord, give the victory to the king. It's expected that the victory is coming from God and from him only because God has taken the initiative to give the victory. God has always planned to deliver his people. We're focusing on, and the picture there of experiencing God is of Moses turning to to look at the burning bush because God is taking the initiative to bring his people out of Egypt and Moses is merely an instrument in that plan. The plan, the initiative, was all God's. And his plan is always to deliver his people. He is always taking the initiative. God did not wait on the king, David, probably in this case in Psalm 20, didn't wait on the king to want victory. God wanted victory for his people. God wanted victory for his people so that he got the glory. Israel has always been this small country surrounded by enemies. Still is. And at this time, in, 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 in at, at any point, if they had victory, it was because God gave it to them. But it was always God's plan to give them that victory. The king was just the instrument at that time. Later on it would be another king, but it would always be God's plan to defend, to give victory to his people. It often involved discipline, bringing them back. Part of the plan was Babylon, part of the plan was Assyria, but it was always so that he got the glory. At those times, he had to discipline because he wasn't getting the glory. You see, trusting God, not in horses and chariots, but trusting God means we have to wait and believe in his initiative. Wait and believe in his plan. We're learning that God is always working around us. And he will continue to work. Uh, if, you, if you remember winter weekend last year, the, the schedule for it, we, we did it Friday night, a couple of sessions on Friday night, and then Saturday morning we went through lunch. We had lunch here, and then it went on into the afternoon. We did four sessions in the gym Saturday morning. 
uh, last week, or a week before last, I got a phone call from a group, the uh, Southwest Louisiana Chamber of Commerce or something. Uh, I don't remember exactly what their name was. But this, they're doing an event out here on Huntington the Saturday of uh, winter weekend, which is February 3rd, where they're going to shut down the outer two lanes, make bike and walking lanes out of them from the park up here all the way across the railroad tracks to City Hall. Uh, they're going to have vendors out there. They're going to have uh, a couple of food trucks they're planning to get to come and set up out here. Uh, th this is in conjunction with what's already going on, the Mardi Gras celebration at the Grove and the parade at 2 o'clock that day, which we didn't know about when we were planning on Winter Weekend. Winter Weekend is always Super Bowl weekend, uh, but Mardi Gras, does, our, our event, Mardi Gras events in the city don't always fall on that weekend. It just happened this year that it did, and we didn't see that coming. But when they called and said, hey, we're doing all this stuff, and literally I had just gone through the first week of experiencing God where he talks about God is always working around you, and when he does something around you, that's your invitation to join him, I'm thinking, we can't not be involved in this as a church. So I called Amy and Tom and said, hey, we, we've got to start changing winter weekend. I don't know exactly what that means. I'm going to meet with these people. Uh, I want you to be there so we can talk about what they want from us and all these things. And we had to start adapting what we were planning to what God was doing. Literally on our front porch, y'all, we could have hundreds of people walking by. That's God doing something altering our plans. We haven't gotten to that part in experiencing God yet, but we will, where we have to adjust what we had planned to go where he is working. So now we're ending winter weekend at uh, 1130 on Saturday. Uh, I will preach the second message, uh, the, the sixth session on Sunday morning. Um, we already had broken vessels coming to lead worship, so we altered that. We said, hey, we, we got the people over here, and we talked to them about what we could do. We're going to set up tables and chairs in the parking lot for people to eat. Uh, we told them you can park the food trucks in the parking lot, so uh, we're going to set the tables and chairs up there. You can use our bathrooms. You can uh, do what you need there. We are going to end at 1130, so broken vessels can go out there and play for 30 minutes, an hour, however long they want to as people eat. And that's why we're asking you, if you come to Winter Weekend, to hang around at 1130 and go out there and, and, and mingle and help and, and do things and show up and talk to people. If you bought a Launch Out t-shirt, wear that t-shirt that day so people know, hey, this is First Baptist Church that's doing this, these things for us. We want to be there in our community when we are needed. Also, if you come to Winter Weekend, please park on that side of the uh, walkway over here on this building, park on that side or our lot over here on the corner or our back lot and leave this lot open for the tables and chairs and the food trucks that day uh, so we can minister. That was God working, interrupted our plans. I didn't, I, I like winter weekend the way it was. I wanted to leave it that way. It was great. It was going to be good. We, we enjoyed it last year. It was going to be even better this year. And God said, you're going to do where, you're going to work where I'm showing up or you're going to continue with your own plans. And I'm like, I just did the lesson. I can't continue with my own plans. And now we're trusting him that he's going to do something great because we were willing. See, God took the initiative. We, 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 we didn't have to wait long. That's the thing about God. We, we wait and believe that he's going to take an initiative. It doesn't take him long to do it. We studied our lesson, and the next day, well, ring, ring, whatever. Uh, ring, ring, hey, we are doing this. Can we, would you all like to take part? God is always working, and he will take the initiative in your life. God's never told me to do anything. I never see what he's doing. It's because you're not listening. He's always working. He is always taking a, uh, the initiative around you. He is always speaking to you. Day four. Trust means listening to his voice. Listening for his voice. We don't hear him because we're not listening for him. All you men with selective hearing, raise your hand. Uh -huh. Some of you didn't bother raising your hand because so you didn't hear me. Like, I ain't listening to that, no. We have selective hearing, Christians. If it's something we like, something that sounds easy, oh yeah, I heard God call me to do that. If it's hard, difficult, puts us out of our comfort zone, isn't the way we've always done it, uh-oh. No, I didn't hear God say that. No, he certainly didn't say that. That means we have to listen actively. 
God is not quiet. God has not silenced himself. If we are not reaching people as a church, it's not because God is not reaching people. It's because we aren't hearing his call to reach people. It's because we aren't hearing his call to be in the community. It's because I want to do winter weekend and didn't want to mess it up by doing other things when in fact that is exactly where God wanted us to be. That is us listening. The Holy Spirit is always leading us. And the Holy Spirit is how God speaks to us. The, the word, yes, but see, this, the sin keeps us from understanding the word when we read it. We cannot understand the Bible. The only thing an unbeliever can understand is his need for salvation. And even that comes by leading of the Holy Spirit. We do not understand spiritual things apart from the Holy Spirit. We don't read the Bible and understand it apart from the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not working, if the Holy Spirit is not speaking in our lives, we do not get it. Only the born-again Christian can understand God's truth. Only the born-again Christian can hear God speak. My question to you, born-again Christian, is why are you not hearing him if you're not? Why do you say he doesn't speak to me? Maybe you're not listening. Maybe you're not born again. That is always a possibility because God speaks to his people. He has not changed. Now, I'm not saying there will be an audible voice and God will never, ever, ever, ever tell you something contradictory to his word. Never. He will never tell you more than his word already says. Because by nature, that would be contradictory. Even if it doesn't seem to uh, contradict, if it's more than the revelation we have, God's not adding to his Bible. God is not adding to his word. It's done. But he will lead us to understand it. He will lead us to apply it in our lives because he always speaks to us. Are you hearing? Because day five, when God speaks, he speaks with a purpose. Our, uh, our twin natives love to talk. Uh, Jason, Janie Marie will rattle on, and it's, it's humorous a lot of times, because they'll begin telling stories, and they have no basis in fact. Um, they actually, as best we can tell, have no basis in our language. Um, they'll just get to going and rattling and just on and on and on, and occasionally we'll catch, oh, okay, well, I understood that word. And, and, and it's, it's just fun for them. They're, they're expanding their imagination. They're expanding their verbal abilities. Uh, they're expanding their... Uh, ability to have a conversation. We, we get all the de developmental things, but behind our hand, we're just laughing because it's funny. All right? They're not really speaking, as far as we can tell, beyond developmental things with a purpose. There's no point to their story, at least not that we can uh, grasp. God never prattles on. God never just babble, 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 and we're like, oh, God, get to the point. That's, that's never a response from us because there's never not a point. God speaks with a purpose. Why do we trust God and nothing else? Why do we not trust work and abilities and all these other things, chariots and horses? Because everything else depends on us somehow. My ability, my talents, all these things, my, my work, my, my, my use of particular tools, that's all about me, me, me. God is the one whom, whom, on whom we should depend at all points. So we don't trust those things because their purpose is limited. Their purpose is limited by our abilities. But our purpose is unlimited because of God's ability through us. Do you hear the difference? Your hang-ups, your poor self-image, your belief in your inability to accomplish something, to do what God has called you, is if I can be blunt, a joke to God. He laughs at your inabilities, not because you're funny, not because he's mocking you, but because your inabilities mean nothing to him. It's not your ability or your inability that matters, it is God's purpose that matters. If God has called you to preach, preach. If God has called you to teach, teach. If God has called you to go, go. If God has called you to do anything, do it. Whether you think you can or not is immaterial. Because God has empowered you with his purpose. 
See, we reject anything that doesn't fit our plan or our ideas of what it should be or what we're able of, we, able to do. We, we reject it out of hand. God cannot be calling me to that. God cannot be telling me that. We, we say we want to serve God, but we are totally self-centered. It's all about me somehow. It's all about my abilities or my desires. But trusting God means rejoicing in interruptions. Excited that God got in our, our lives and messed things up. Excited that God brought, uh, is bringing sulfur to our doorstep on a, on a Saturday when, given last year's numbers, we'll have 60 to 70 people here, church members studying God's word, having gone through experiencing God, to hear how we are supposed to respond when God works among us. We read scripture, 2 Peter at this point, we'll get through the entire lesson of 2 Peter, which is uh, primarily about reaching people by the end, before the end, making sure of their salvation, and now we're going to get the opportunity at 1130 to go out and meet sulfur. Is that not God working? I didn't plan it. I didn't say, wow, it would be great if something interrupted our winter weekend. That's God bringing something to us. Yet we are tempted to reject it if it doesn't fit our plans. We must trust when God goes against our plans because that's when things are going to get awesome. My plans stink most of the time. I can tell you two stories. I'll make them both brief. I had this great idea when we lived in, I don't even know where we lived, Kingwood, I think at the time. And I saw an ad for a Christmas train from Austin to Burnett, Texas. And you could go and see all these beautiful lights, and it would be a wonderful train ride. And you go and you, you see the, the church in, in Burnett, I think it was First Baptist, had this amazing nativity scene there, and cute, quaint little restaurants and shops. and <laughs> Biggest dud I have ever planned in my life. It is still a joke in our family how horrible it was. There were no lights on the way to Burnett from Austin. Uh, my daddy went, and he's an engineer, and was for 38 years, and he said, you know, generally the train tracks run through the worst parts of town, uh, and there, there usually aren't just mansions lined up on the sides decorating for the trains, and he's right. Um, we got to Burnett. It was kind of late. Most of the quaint little shops were closed. The, we had an hour and a half or two hours in Burnett. The line for the nativity scene was like three and a half hours long. Uh, a lot of the restaurants were closed, so we ended up going to eat at a hotel, motel restaurant buffet. It was a dud, except the kids got to ride a train. They were excited. They didn't care about any of it. They were on a train. It was good. My second story is when I was called to the ministry. 15 years old. I, I knew I was called to the ministry. There was no doubt about it in my mind. It was a light bulb went off one day. I'm called to the ministry. That's just the way it is. All right. I can sing, and I don't want to be a preacher. God's called me to be a minister of music. Literally, that's the conversation that went on in my head. And for five years, I pursued that avenue. Went to LSU. Got into the school of music. Full scholarship. Voice major at LSU. Doing well until I got mono the second semester of my freshman year. That'll mess up a voice major. Second year of college, I, I didn't even take music classes. I just took core classes because I was so uh, bummed and, 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 and discombobulated and, and just didn't know what God was doing. And he said, well, maybe if you do what I told you to, and not what you think you should do, things will work out a little bit better. And at 20 years old, I surrendered to preach. Now, here's the thing. God took the initiative. God said, this is what you're going to do. This is what's going to happen. You are going to preach. 20 years old. I served my first church as pastor, my first traditional church as pastor at 36. 16 years I had to wait to fulfill the call on my life. Why? Because God don't care about time. Because God had a plan and a purpose. God had an initiative. He had spoken to me at 15, and he had plans for me at that time, 21 years later, for me to fulfill. I just had to wait. Went against my plans, but my plans are rarely that great. But God's plans are always great. See, I, to wrap up, our trust must always look to God and nowhere else. No matter how, think, how well we think we've done in the planning, no, no matter how well we've designed our parachute suit, 
or plan of the experiment, we must always trust God and no one else. Our parachute suit, our spiritual parachute suit will rarely work. When it comes to accomplishing God's plans, I, would, I, will, I will venture to say, go so far as to say, it'll never work. We will always take a nosedive into the dirt if we are trying to do God's work our way. If we are trying to fulfill God's plans with our methods, they won't work. If we're trying to fulfill our plans with God's methods, they won't work. It is always about God's plans and God's methods. Then we will be successful. And success won't always look like a coasting to the ground landing. Soft, feet on the ground. Ah, Sometimes we're going to land hard anyway. But that's okay if we are doing God's plan with his method. Moses didn't always meet success in leading the children out, in getting the children out of Israel. The children of Israel out of Egypt, sorry, rather. Our plans, our ideas, our preferences, our desires, if not from God, will always fail and will never satisfy. Some trust in their plans, and some trust in their preferences and ideas, but we will trust in the plans, ideas, uh, uh, purposes, vision, words of the Lord our God, and then we will always be successful as individuals and as our church. God's ultimate interruption in our lives, though, is the call to salvation. I mean, you want to talk about interruption. I was on the way to hell, and God interrupted. I'm glad he did. Some of you, not only were you on the way to hell, but you lived not just an eternally destructive lifestyle, your, your eternal soul being destroyed in, in hell, but you lived a temporally, not temporarily, a temporally destructive lifestyle. God interrupted your drug use. God interrupted your alcoholism. God interrupted your pornography. God interrupted your adultery. God interrupted all of these things in your life. And chances are, some of those things you didn't want to give up. Chances are, some of those things you still don't want to give up. And you've given your heart to Jesus, and he has saved you, but you still struggle to let go of those things. I get it, but God is interrupting your life today and calling you. Believer, he's calling you to holiness. Unbeliever, he's calling you to salvation. It will interrupt your life. It will make you change your plans. Some of you will have to change your career because he's going to call you to the mission field. He's going to call you to the ministry. Some of you will have to change your friends, your relationships, because he's going to tell you, you can't be around that person anymore. No, he's not going to call you to divorce your husband or spouse, so don't do that. He won't. He will call you to minister to them, but he will also call you to be faithful to the compact, to the vow, to the contract you have made before him and man. So don't try to get out of your marriage that way. Don't blame God for that. He doesn't want you happy. He wants you holy. But he does want you to lead that person to holiness. He does want to interrupt your life. So this morning... Will you let him? Unbeliever, will you let Jesus interrupt your life this morning? Will you understand? Will you look and trust in Jesus? Will you understand that God is holy and just and will judge your sin? He will judge all sin. Will you understand that you are willfully sinful and fallen and you are destined for everlasting torment and judgment? Will you, will you believe that this morning? Will, will you trust in, in the absolute sovereignty, the absolute accuracy of God's word when he says what will happen to unbelievers. But will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust that Jesus is the perfect son of God, fully man, fully God, who took our place on the cross, took our punishment on the cross, but also took our sin on the cross, dying for everyone and rising three days later to prove to you that he had done and defeated everything that he said he would do and defeat? And then would you trust in Jesus by repenting of your sin, placing your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him and living for him, interrupting your life? Salvation isn't a hiccup, it's an interruption. Salvation isn't a bump in the road, it is a complete U-turn that takes you somewhere else. That's what salvation is. 
Will you choose that today? Will you follow Jesus? Will you trust in Jesus? Some trust in their goodness. Others trust in their church membership. But the saved only trust in the name and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. I know I altered the verse a little bit. But I think it's okay for you to hear that your only salvation is Jesus. Only trust in him today. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the victory that you provide in Jesus Christ. Victory over sin. Victory that is better than a victory over sickness. Better than a victory over uh, enemies. Better than a victory over life's issues, life's problems. Lord, we have the ultimate victory over the ultimate problem in our lives. Jesus Christ taking our sin. And I pray this morning that if there's someone here that's never trusted Jesus as Savior, they would do that today. They would follow in, in, in believers' baptism, and they would today change their eternity. Lord, I pray for believers this morning who need to trust in God, need to look to you, Lord, need to not put their trust in chariots and horses and all the, the things that we can manipulate and we can do to get to certain outcomes, but trust that you are putting opportunities in our way. You are putting uh, plans in place. You are calling us to certain activities. You are speaking to us, and you are showing us where you are working and telling us this is your opportunity. May we as believers jump at that chance and not forfeit that opportunity. Lord, our hearts are yours, our, our minds are yours this morning to do as you will. Speak to us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, look to God. Trust him. What do you need to do? Do you need to, as an unbeliever, do you need to trust in Jesus? Do you want us to pray for you? Tom will be in the corner over there. I will be in the corner over here to pray with you if that's what you need. Maybe you've already trusted Christ and you just want to nail that down a little bit this morning. Let us pray for, with you. Let us talk to you. You want to follow in baptism. You want to join our church. You need to come to these prayer rails and say, Lord, I have been all about my plans and my purposes, but from now on I will be about your plans and your purposes. Maybe that's something you need to bodily change your position so that you can know that you are changing your spiritual position. You want to pray about that? Come do it. But whatever your decision is this morning, however God is leading you, you respond this morning. Don't put it off. Stand let God work on you as he does business with you this morning.